Welcome to the very first episode of Amala Tierra, a podcast that will cover the stories that encourage us to come together and become custodians of the land and create a close connection within the communities of those who care deeply for the Balearic Islands. Our aim is to talk about everything from how we can remain sovereign over our seeds, improve the quality of our soil and its biodiversity, and work together with positive farming practices like regenerative agriculture to enhance the level of local food production and consumption on our islands. My name is Joe Yule, and through this series, I'll be introducing you to those that work the land and the sea to create projects that bring back the indigenous plants and foods that thrive on these lands, and share knowledge to build what Vandana Shiva describes as a biodiversity register, so we can understand how to cultivate the heritage seeds, bring back the native foods, while also taking a look at how we work with more sustainable housing, renewable energy, landscaping, permaculture and farming and both nurture and protect our island ecosystems both on and off the land. Series one of this podcast will be with you for the next eight months and this month in June we're celebrating World Localization Day along with Local Futures Director Helena Norberg-Hodge. When we localize we become more humble, we become more aware of this amazing infinite complexity of every single grain of sand, every leaf on every tree, every cell in our bodies, unique and changing. And we head to Pudasleo to catch up with Ibiza landscape gardener, Jason Watson-Todd, co-founder of Terra Vita. Jason grew up on the island after his parents arrived here in the 60s. It was an era where there was this fusion of, let's say, the new world and the old world. So when my parents came here, I think there was one paved road on the island. We begin today's episode at the beginning, with a focus on the history of the land to really set the scene for why Ibiza's rich red earth in some parts of the island is in a mild state of desertification. With the massive arrival of tourism in the 1970s, the economic system of the island's families changed as there was more money to be made, which resulted in a mass abandonment of the countryside. This can be observed today in the landscapes where there's been no generational change. The fields have been untouched and the forests have won over the fertile lands. Traditional Ebithenko farmer Vicente Palamet joins us to give us a little bit on the history of agriculture across the Balearics. I'm a traditional farmer and I grew up with my paternal grandparents who'd been farmers and artisans all their life. So how would you describe the distribution of land in the Balearics during the 1970s? Muy dividida, la propiedad de la tierra. In terms of land ownership, both Ibiza and Formentera are made up of small parcels of land. This comes from way back when land was distributed after the conquest. The warlords, who had come here to conquer the islands, took ownership of the lands and distributed it amongst farmers. It was a Ufitufus contract, which means that the holder of the contract has the right to the enjoyment of the property, often in perpetuity, on condition of proper care, payment of tax and rent. This is very different from what happened in Mallorca and Menorca, where this contract gave them the title of the property in exchange for an annual rent, which was normally one-fifteenth of every harvest. Therefore, the farmers in Ibiza had the right to distribute their lands amongst their children or sell them in exchange for paying a contribution to the warlord. In Ibiza, the farmers were much more owners of the land than their counterparts in Mallorca or Menorca. For example, where the lords themselves were much more in control of the uh, ownership. This led to the subdivision of a father's estate amongst his children. The lands were divided amongst as many children as he had, which is why the current estates are so small. So what was the protocol for the division of land among family members? La última moda ya cuando la superficie era pequeña. In the olden days it was divided equally amongst the sons. In their later years the parcels grew smaller in order to avoid splitting up the land into parcels that would be too small to provide a living in terms of productivity. An heir was chosen to inherit the family home and 50% of the land. The remaining half of the land 
was then shared equally between all the children, both male and female equally, including the main heir. In return for the privilege, the chosen heir had the obligation to take care of the parents and to financially support all the sisters who remained unmarried. So did the women in the family receive fertile lands or did the male members of the family choose the best parts of the land? The situation varied in each family. Sometimes, instead of collecting their legitimate takings, which is the name given to the part that corresponds to them, instead of collecting it in land, they collected it in money. This happened often, uh, even amongst brothers, but, but less so. Uh, it was more common for the sisters to collect their inheritance in money. And if they collected the land, they received the least favourable land. The heir chose the best land and the rest was divided as best it could be, but the least attractive parcels of land always went to the women. It was a bit cruel, really. So is it fair to say that the daughters received land closer to the sea, whereas the sons received parts that were closer maybe to the centre of the island? No, entonces, la zona llana es la más fértil. Esta iría a los hermanos mayores siempre. The land next to the sea is deemed to be the worst for agriculture, just like land on mountains. The flat area is the most fertile. This would always be distributed to the older brothers. In all cases, the most marginal areas went to the younger brothers and to the sisters. And they are the ones that later, with the tourist boom, have become the most valuable. Uh, This has happened not only in Ibiza, but throughout the Balearic Islands. Lands located in the most marginal areas were the ones that were given to women because there was no more land left. But later down the line, they have been the ones that are worth the most. Nice little spin on the story there. I mean, the tables have clearly turned now. But can you tell us why you feel that it was like this then? Entonces, la mujer se iba a casar. Well, in my opinion, the family unit has always sought to be productive. The women were assumed to be going to marry a man who should have an inheritance and should have land. So it should not depend on what the woman owned. There was a case in San Miguel, for example, of a good farm which had land and produced income. Every time a girl was born, the father would celebrate with a big party because he was going to marry her to someone who would surely have land. On the other hand, when a son was born, he would retreat for a week to an area called Rubio in Potichol to figure out how he was going to get money to buy a farm to give to his son. They were not so much individual rights of each son or daughter. It was more a commercial vision of the family unit. You also have to consider that the women receive gold and other gifts from their parents. The garments and jewellery that girls wear when they dress up as payeses for the feasts. So tell us a bit about the agricultural community in the 70s. Well, before tourism, the family was very much a nucleus. Then it was the family that did all the work. What happened is that sometimes there were families in which the children were still very young and the family nucleus was small. Servants and shepherds were hired from outside the family nucleus and usually children or old people were hired. They were practically never paid in currency but were kept in the house fed and clothed. My grandfather, for example, was eight years old and was a shepherd on a farm 15 kilometres from his home. He only visited his parents from time to time. This was quite common. The man of the house had to work with the animals, work, plough the land, and then the younger ones and the women would do the less heavy work of planting time, for example, throwing the seeds into the furrows. This was done by women. Taking care of cattle was done by children and the elderly, and all the jobs were more or less divided by sex and age, according to the capabilities of each one. So which crops were the most significant in Ibiza in those days? La gran mayoría de la tierra de Ibiza. Después regadío el In traditional agriculture we have two or three versions. There is secano or dry land which is the vast majority of the land in Ibiza. Then the land which was irrigated, or which needed to be irrigated, which is normal here. And thirdly, there is the facius, which was only the area of the city of Ibiza and close to Talamanca. The farms were divided into four equal parts, and in each one, different crops or fallow land were cultivated in a four-year rotation. The main crop was wheat because it was used to make bread, it was the daily food. It was the basic need to have bread in their diet. So this crop was given the utmost attention. The second year after the wheat was grown, barley was sown, which was also used to make bread, especially for smaller farms, which didn't produce enough wheat for the whole year. Bread was made by mixing barley flour. Sometimes it was made only from barley. Then the third year, which was after the barley, it was pasture for the cattle. Uh, but it was mainly for cheese. 
Uh, in other words, the cattle were not taken to graze in that area until their young had been removed and the sheep and goats started to be milked. So this was early spring, when the grass had grown quite a bit. It was quite significant that there were quite a lot of legumes with quite a lot of protein, and that made the animals produce more milk. So this part was dedicated to cheese. The fourth parcel of the farm was the one in preparation to sow the wheat in the following year. This part was ploughed several times, three or four times, and in some areas, legumes were sown to provide uh, nitrogen to the soil. Mainly peas were sown, fava beans, India peas and chickpeas. These were the basic crops. Legumes and bread were the basics of daily life. Then, in the irrigated areas, they had more variety. There were mainly potatoes, corn, sweet potatoes, and then other things like tomatoes, eggplant, pepper, lettuce and pumpkins. So what was cultivated in the facies? There were market garden crops and irrigation crops as this is a very distinct type of irrigation, because the water rises by capillarity to the crop, and it is not the other way around, where one irrigates from above, which is the normal irrigation. The sweet potato that was grown, for example, was red sweet potato. It was not white sweet potatoes, as was customary in the rest of the island. I don't really know why. Simply because it was customary, they grew potatoes, corn, cabbage, onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers, aubergine, squash, watermelon and melon. These were grown in all the irrigated areas of Ibiza, but mainly potatoes, corn and sweet potatoes. This was the most intense because this is what was considered to nourish people the most. Can you tell us about the situation in Ibiza post-war and how did this impact what was grown here? In the post-guerra, there was distribution. In the post-war period, there was hunger because there was a lack of food distribution. Then we stopped importing a lot of food from overseas, which added to the fact that what was produced here since many years was not enough to sustain the population. Then came the El Astrapelo. Uh, there were people who hoarded production to sell it at a very high price. There were people who could not pay the price that was being asked. As a result, people began to eat poorly. And above all, it was the lack of wheat, the lack of flour to make bread, which resulted in people feeling more hungry because bread was a basic part of every meal. Then there were the legumes, there was sobrasada, there were many things, but everything was accompanied by bread. Having to eat without bread meant they did not know what to eat, even if there were more foods available. That's when carob began to be consumed, which is why there is not a single recipe that contains carob here in Ibiza, because it was a subsistence food. If you ate carob, it was because you had nothing else to eat. And that has some negative connotations that makes carob not something which is desirable. My grandparents refused to eat carob. They'd been forced to eat it. So in terms of reports of starvation in Ibiza, that was basically why. Because there was production, but there was no distribution. And so the barley bread, for example, which was used more than the wheat bread, and corn was also added to the bread, which was frowned upon, as was cooked sweet potato. Basically, people made do with what they had. Fish was consumed in large quantities because there was plenty of fish here. And so I've not heard of any case of death by hunger here in those years. But I think people remember this period, albeit now there are almost no people around from that era, as it was a very cruel and very dramatic time. My mother was born in 1954. In the 60s, before going to school, during the harvest season, they woke up very early went to work for a while, and then they went to school, and the afternoon they went back to work. What was sold from the farm was always surplus produce, normally almonds. The almonds that grew on the island have always been for sale. In fact, if you consider local recipes, practically nothing contains almonds, only salsa de nadal or pinalets, which were only made in Ibiza town. They were not made in the country houses, only salsa de nadal. A neighbour once told me that in the 50s and 60s, five kilos of almonds in their shells was equivalent of a day's wage. Five kilos of almonds is, is very little. And the other products sold included baby goats and lambs. And in the farms that had an orchard, the calves were sold. This was worth a lot of money uh, as meat was very expensive. So with these two products and carob, however, carob was 
also needed on a farm with draft animals, mainly horses or mules. Part of the carob harvest was sold, if it was an abundant harvest. If not, then it was stored on the farm. These were the three main things that were sold. In addition to this, some of the larger farms would also sell wheat, barley and oats. There were some farms that produced oats and then the farms that had orchards and market gardens in the airport area, all around Ibiza and in San Antonio. These mainly produced potatoes for export to England during the 40s, 50s and 60s. And sweet potato. Sweet potato was cheaper than potato. There the local people consumed more sweet potato than potato and they were the main cash crops. So was there an issue with lack of water on the island at that time like there is now? No, no había problema de agua porque no se no se usaba el agua como se usa ahora. No, no, there was no water problem because water was not used in volumes as it is now. In the homes where there were cisterns, there were wells or maybe you had to go half a kilometer away to get water, but very little water was used and therefore there was no water problem. If now we had access to the water they had at that time, it would seem catastrophic because we are not used to not using so much water. Today's situation then is that the younger farmers need a second income stream to survive. But with the advent of tourism in Ibiza, how did this impact not only agricultural life, but also the local community? Entonces, Nunca well, en toda la historia de la humanidad. attracted a young labor force. Never in the history of mankind have the young and the old had the same vision, nor the same tastes. Therefore, when tourism started to take off, it was something modern and appealing to the youth. This meant that elder people continued with their agricultural work because it's what they'd been accustomed to all their lives. It is what they knew how to do and they had no other vision for their life and their environment. While the young people, who hated working for hardly any money, found a means to escape. Against this backdrop, it was easier to hire a young person, even if they did not make much more money than they would have with modern adaptive agricultural production. But since farming is viewed as old and devalued in terms of prestige, therein lies a big change in society. So it has taken a whole generation for farming to regain a little bit of status. Therefore, there is a whole part of society that does not know how to work the land, how to make it productive, leading to the abandonment of the land. And in most cases, the only thing that is done in the countryside today is maintenance, which is more counterproductive than if it were completely abandoned. In my mind, I'm thinking of the use of the rotavator in the spring to kill the grass and leave the field ploughed and clean. This, in terms of regenerative agriculture, is a disaster and a failure. But already the generation of people who went to work in tourism, in many cases, do not know why things were done as they were done previously, which at the regenerative agricultural level, this is fantastic. From what you're telling us then, uh, we've lost the farming knowledge. Um, and how do you view the progress in working the land and the loss of biodiversity? My grandmother used to say that to work the land, today people want to work the land, and they can't because they don't have enough hands. Before in the house, there were big families. Usually there were different animals that each one ate in a different way and ate some species and not others. Nowadays, we do not have so much labor because the production that the land gives, you cannot pay for so much labor. So we want to have the same benefits as before at an environmental and not only economic level, but with a reduced workforce. This leads to the use of machinery and the use of fertilizers in the soil, and this goes against biodiversity. So how can we manage this? This is why we are doing so much research into regenerative agriculture when they're actually the same farming practices from the old days. This is a bit complicated. I don't know I have the answer. In your grandmother's time, were machinery or animals used on the farms? I'd love to know the answer to this because I feel like, what is your view on animals on the farms today and how did this fade out? Until 50 years ago, animals were in use on practically all the land. The animals were kept on the farm itself. Until the beginning of the 19th and the end of the 18th centuries, cows were the main cattle. Later, also due to a change of generation, mules became fashionable. They were faster and stronger, but they had to be imported. The cows were bred here. The mules were bred in Mallorca or Valencia, and you had to pay for them. 
But in the end, the mule consumed a byproduct of the harvest, which is straw. They consumed some fresh grass or alfalfa or carob. Everything was produced on the farm. There was no need to incur any additional cost. The downside about the mule was that they could not be left alone in a warehouse or in a garage for three months without being taken care of. An animal needs to be fed every day. It has to be working every day so it doesn't atrophy. She has to be fit. And this is where the battle has been won by the machinery. If you needed to work a piece of land, you would work it today and not having to do anything for a year. The tractor goes into storage in a garage. It doesn't demand anything from you. You don't have to do anything to it. Nowadays, with Roberto Contaldo, it is being promoted again. And in my case, for example, I'm very tempted to have animals to do the work because they are two completely different jobs or levels of output that can be achieved, for example, on a farm with irrigation, like the one I'm managing with animals as opposed to the work done by machinery. Also, one thing that my mother, whose father had a horse and then replaced it with a mule when it died, had told me many times that the quality of the soil was very different when they worked with animals as opposed to when they worked with machines. Also, when the farms had animals, they produced manure. This manure was thrown onto the fields. In dry lands, it was used in the area where the wheat was planted, where the wheat was sown. This contribution of organic matter has been lost in many of the farms. It no longer exists. So we now have the soils which are poor in organic matter, very hard packed due to the lack of organic matter. And because of the weight of the tractors and machinery, this means that it produces less grass. That's what people want. Not too many weeds because it's nicer, it's clean. They call it clean. This again is a vicious circle. If you don't produce grass, there's no organic matter decomposing on top of the soil. It has less and less organic matter. It's more and more hard packed, more and more desertified. So when did they realise that machinery had a very different impact on the soil than, say, for example, the animals did? And did they see this as negative? It's carísimo. Lo que pasa que... Yes, they realized this from the moment they started using machinery. What happened is that the speed at which the machine works through a hectare, for example, with a medium-small tractor like those we have here, of about 50 to 60 horsepower, this can be plowed in 10 hours if using a moldboard plow or four hours if using a rotavator, whereas an animal like a mule would require three full days. Therefore, when weighed against animals, machinery came out on top because when harvesting wheat, it would not be economically feasible with an animal. This together with the fact that most people left the land to work on construction sites and tourism, taking care of a mule or a horse would require additional effort. So they sold the animal or abandoned it, bought a tractor, which was parked and didn't require any looking after. All these factors made machinery more attractive than animals. However, from the moment that machines were put into use, fig trees started to die because the tractor pulled out the superficial roots that were quite thick. The almond trees stopped bearing fruit and ultimately they lost their vigour. They did realise it at the time, but it was the age of modernity. We've not touched upon the topic of fertilisers and chemical inputs, which have also um, have a great cost for the farmer. Sí, el, lo que son fertilizantes. Yes, fertilizers have been used since the 40s and so on. Uh, before there was not so much. These make the farmer's job much easier because with a bag of tres quinces, yield increased without having to make the effort of taking cartloads of manure to the field. This again goes against the environment and against the soil. But of course, the production was good, so they didn't realize that it was harmful to the soil. They did know that if it was abused, the field would produce only poor quality grass. But let it grow, let it grow was a bit of a green revolution mentality in the 1970s, throwing chemicals and herbicides out there. We need to bear in mind that before tourism, before the Industrial Revolution in the Mediterranean, the wheat fields, for example, were sown to furrow, where you could see the lines of wheat. I'm referring to when it's growing, when the wheat is small, it implied that the whole family regularly had to remove weeds one by one by hand. So if we go from that to using sulphate, which they claim is good, all the weeds die. They didn't see anything wrong there. And then in the case of storing grain, if you take wheat, barley, whatever from this year and 
put into a sack without doing anything to it. In three months, it has bugs, weevils, they lay eggs. So in the old days, to avoid this, when the straw was removed from above the threshing floor, a haystack was made or a paille. When they had it at the desired height, when they had it at the desired height, they emptied the inside, they made a kind of deposit and put the grain in there, and then they finished it off by closing the top part. There the grain was hermetically sealed and the bugs, the weevils, could not breed. The wheat was left in the haystack for four or five months and it was sterilized. But then a liquid solution was introduced that in the houses that made watertight rooms on purpose, they called this the sterilizer. And they put the grain there and in some jars, put a little bit of liquid, closed it, sealed the door with paper and flour and paste and left it there for a few days until the liquid evaporated and no bugs came out. This was fantastic. Of course, all the products are no longer allowed nowadays because of their toxicity. But for them, it was fantastic, of course. They did not know what they now know about these things. And today, when the soil is analysed, I wonder if we can see the impact then of everything that's happened in the last decade of using machinery and phytosanitary products. Tú ahora analizas cualquier suelo en la isla y tienes déficit de materia orgánica. Yes, of course, if you analyse any soil now on the island, you'll find that there is a substantial deficit of organic matter and nutrient imbalances. It's normal. Uh, also bearing in mind that the land is no longer cultivated, which means that there is no provision of a diversity of plants to provide sustenance for the different microorganisms. The land is left bare every year. Most of the land is now, at this time of year, cleared to make it beautiful for the summer. The sun is beating down more directly on the bare soil. In the old days, that only happened in wheat, which was ploughed several times to break down the organic matter and have more nutrients available for the plants for the following year. Now it is done in general. So how do you think we solve this then? I mean, obviously we've had a new generation of young farmers who are learning from best practices overseas. However, how do we reach the older farmers and talk about how to take care of the land? I think it's difficult to change the older farmers' minds because they've been used to working in a certain way. The important thing is that young people who are starting out see that there are different ways, other solutions, and simply by example. I think that that is the most didactic thing there is. If something works for the neighbour, you try it and you do it the same way. And then in terms of economics and not using pesticides and herbicides and so on, which is an expense, it results in high production and more produce. I think it is the easiest, most viable. So do you think that the future for agriculture in the Balearics is positive? Me gustaría pensar que sí. I would like to think so. The problem I see with agriculture is the availability of land. So the Bank de Teres or Ibiza Land Bank is doing a good job because it connects people who have land and don't take care of it with people who want to do things and don't have access to land. But the fact there are so many people who have land and do not know how to work it means that sometimes the land is assumed to have value that does not really have. On the island, we have the price of tourist land, not agricultural land. So the value of agricultural land is low because production is limited. Taking on a farm that has a plantation of olive or almond trees that is going to yield a production. It's not the same as a piece of land that is full of weeds because it has been abandoned for over 10 years. But the future depends on education, a lot of training and a lot of awareness at an environmental and agricultural level. And this is missing. There are people walking around the island picking up almond branches when they're in bloom, stepping on the field to go and pick up that almond branch without thinking that someone has planted it and someone wants to get a production from there. It's not just weeds. We have an island with a lot of rural space full of urban people. That is the problem. So in your opinion, what is the most pronounced impact of tourism on life in the countryside? The abandonment of rural work has been the main impact of tourism. Young people who are the ones who had to take over the work in the fields went directly to work in tourism. Let's say that in Spain as a whole, there's been a generational jump or a generational transmission has been lost in many cases. But here even more so because there's been a great lack of labour in tourism and very little desire to work in the countryside on the part of the youth in the 60s, 70s and 80s. 
So the strong youth from these decades left farm life and the thread was lost. Farms have not been modernised. Farming has been abandoned. So what is your dream or what would farming look like, you know, if it could be absolutely the way you wanted it to be? Mi sueño sería que estuviera eh, cuidado otra vez. Oh, my dream would be that the land would be taken care of again and reverted to a productive status because then it would have a value. People would want it. It's clear that it cannot work in the same way that it worked 100 years ago because we all need to live. But if there were extensive livestock farmers, as there are today in some areas who manage herds of 200, 300, 400 animals, especially goats, to roam the hills and clear the bush and therefore to reduce fires, it would be a win-win for everybody. That the production of carob, the price of which has risen recently and and it has been seen that you can earn a good day's wage collecting carob so that this could be maintained over time. That the dry lands of the island could produce carob, almonds, dried figs. For all this, people need to see that there is an alternative, that it is not just a matter of being a gardener on five hectares on Saturdays and Sundays, but that you can make a living out of it. You have to be passionate about it, obviously, because agriculture depends on time, depends on the price that others dictate, etc. It has to be your passion, otherwise you don't do it. But I would like to see a lot of passionate people working together. Vicent, thank you so much for your time and for being with us, far from your field, to share with us your stories and so much wisdom. Gracias a vosotras por, invi por invitarme. Thank you for inviting me. Our next guest is Ibiza landscape gardener extraordinaire, Jason Watson-Todd, co-founder of Terravita. Jason grew up on Ibiza, but studied his passion for the land overseas before coming back to live here full-time and raise his family of four girls. Terravita is a creative design studio focusing on landscape architecture, interior design and architecture. Jason, welcome to the Amar Latiera podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for bringing me here to this beautiful spot in Pudasleo, which I think we never would have found without the help of somebody who's been living here all their lives. Yeah, this has always been one of my favourite little getaway areas to connect with the sea and just to, to, yeah, to chill out and to relax and to contemplate. I gather your parents um, arrived here in 1969 and were the founders of the Las Dalias hippie market. What was it like growing up here as, as a child? Absolutely and totally wild. Uh, uh, it was a unique, a truly unique childhood. Actually, a loss for words as to how I can explain how how special it was. It was an era where there was this fusion of, let's say, the new world and the old world. So when my parents came here, I think there was one paved road on the island, and everybody was pretty much still going around in in, in donkeys and carts and things like that. No one had any electricity, there was no running water, but there was uh, a real beautiful vibe, from at least from what my mum explained to me in those days, of th this coming together of the old world and the new world, in that sense. And I was, I had the privilege of kind of, of playing part of that, especially towards the, the end of it, let's say. In my home we had, we had no electricity, we, no, we had no running water, there was very little food in those days, but it was very, everybody was really happy. Everybody would help each other out. Uh, there was that big sense of community on a kind of extended family. You'd, uh, obviously there was no, there was no mobile phones. There was no phones. And you'd tend to, if you wanted to meet people, you'd go to their house. And, and if they weren't there, there was usually like a, a, a pen and pencil on the door and you'd leave like a little note. The doors were always open, so you could open the open the house, go in, make yourself a cup of tea, cup of tea, sit down on the sofa, you know, leave, leave a note and say I'll come back in a couple of days. Just to give you an example, uh, I remember going off camping with my friends, four or five friends of mine. I think we were nine years old, and going camping by ourselves, and you know, getting all our kit uh, and just trudging off down the Camino and saying to our parents, "Hey, we'll be back in a couple of days." 
and then waving to us and off we go <laughs> and literally disappear for a couple of days and, and camp on the beach and, and uh, fish. Those memories, uh, it, it's, it's like gold dust. It was very raw, very authentic, very kind of human, very down to earth. Let's say this fear culture that we have in, in this day and age, it's just, it just literally didn't exist. So how did you create that or cultivate that connection to the land? Was it was it those wild camping trips that kind of enabled you to kind of see the beauty and, and feel that sort of sensation, I guess, of like, you know, being more close to nature? Yeah, I think it was it was just being so close to nature in the sense of, of uh, going camping or just I'd walk all over the place in, in those days uh, or hitchhike uh, so it was very common to kind of walk through forests and and uh, walk along the coast to get from one area to the to the next and I I suppose that over the years of you know my, my early childhood of of um, observing nature observing the trees the landscape the sea and all of that that must have had a, a deep impact on me that fusion of let's say uh, landscape architecture or architecture with nature so kind of creating a greener world things like that <laughs> what is it about um ibiza's flora and fauna or in the balearics in general that's just so unique I, I, as opposed to other places that you've been good question i think when when i was so I, I left Ibiza when I was 11 and I spent 10 years in, in England and then, 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 then came back permanently. But I'd, I would come back every summer. And I always remember that distinct feeling of when I'd step off the plane, you get that kind of that, that waft of the kind of the Mediterranean pine trees, which really has that unique smell. And then Ibiza is just, it's rolling hills. It's, it's very feminine in that side. What is it that makes the land so red here? I mean, millions of people have asked me this question. I'm sure you could uh, explain it way better than I ever could. Ah, that's a good question. I mean, there's all sorts of um, theories behind there. There's there's even kind of uh, spiritual theories, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty. Yeah, there's 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 plenty on that side. But the 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 exact composition as to why the, the it's the the clay soil here is red. I actually don't know that, but. Uh, yeah, I do know some some stories about which uh, we won't go into, but why the soil is supposedly red. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we see a lot of spraying happening here through the winter time and various other you know, junctures across the year. And I think it'd be very interesting to hear from your perspective. Obviously, we hear about these deadly caterpillars and and many other things besides. What is it? What are they spraying? I think well, globalization has its its positive aspects and its negative aspects and one of the negative aspects has been let's say the importation of for example olive trees or or certain palm trees the by importing palm trees from I think it was from Morocco there's a, a red weevil that actually somehow made its way from Asia and there's n there's no natural predator there's nothing that can control it and that red weevil will actually eat into the heart of the palm and the only way you can control it is by spraying and it's spraying uh, insecticides on you know three or four times a year and there's there's no natural predator for that and it, for example in relation to the olive trees by importing olive trees uh, since there wasn't a proper quarantine control initially um, somehow in some of the olive trees some snakes managed to kind of make their way into the trunk of the olive trees and then made their way to Ibiza and now we have a problem. They're a big threat to, let's say, the local wildlife, especially lizards. Geckos, not so much, but lizards have definitely had a hard time and, and I've, I've really noticed that. Uh, I remember uh, even 10 years ago, you'd go to the beach and you couldn't even put your sandwich down because there would be like a, a hundred lizards eating, eating away at it. And now you're lucky if you see one or two. So that's, it, yeah, it's very sad and a, and, and a big problem and there's not really a solution mm. so I think we're uh, sometimes you know we, we 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 seem very wise and you know very intelligent creatures but on the other end of the spectrum we're we're quite silly that with the way we take care of nature and and the kind of this general lack of respect for her I think that that's 
a very important subject doing the kind of work that you do in in um, landscape design and architecture design I think you know there's so many people that come here with as you said wishes for a palm tree you know but you know bringing plants that aren't indigenous to the island I suppose is is the number one way that these kind of problems arise because they breed you know imbalance within the natural flora and fauna that's a great question and this is where I have to strike the balance with what a client wishes and and at the same time to kind of guide them to make wise decisions so in relation to palms I will always suggest uh, the local date palm um, and not go for other types of palms because a local date palm obviously is is uh, it's much easier for it to adapt to the to Ibiza and it has it has less problems in with kind of diseases and bugs and things like that with the olive trees I would I would say like, you know best to plant olive trees but if you are going to import them to to import them at the right time of year because there's certain times of years where the snakes don't hibernate and that's when you can actually import them which is it's it, that that way you avoid importing let's say more hidden snakes within the trunk of a pine uh, with a of an olive tree. I don't really like snakes very much. <laughs> Me either. Um, I hear that you also work with a, a biologist on the land that kind of protects and encourages certain types of wildlife to enter the garden and perhaps be present around the homes of the people that you work with. And I just wonder, you know, one of the things that I heard that you've been installing homes for bats. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, that's a great question. Well, just to, to, to emphasize a little bit more on, on the design team, it, we have biologists, we have landscape architects, interior designers, artists, uh, and so on. And they all work, and biologists, and they all work together as a team and focus on, on a biophilic approach. So let's say biophilia is this fusion between nature and architecture. So we will, in this case, uh, Christina, who's our biologist, she will do the research into uh, if it's possible to have bat homes in, in, in the particular location that the house is set. And a bat will eat, I think, around 2,000 mosquitoes a night. So it's a great way of controlling your mosquitoes instead of spraying, because a lot of people just basically spray chemicals all over the place. And don't just kill the mosquitoes, they kill everything else. So it's a bit, it's a bit silly. And if you can incorporate, let's say, bat homes and that's a, a wonderful way of helping nature and we also uh, make um, hedgehog houses mm. and hedgehogs is, are the only natural predator that will eat snakes obviously when the snakes are small but they'll have a basically they'll gobble them up so it's another way of controlling snakes and you found respect for those little hedgehogs yeah i love hedgehogs yes it's very cute little creatures especially when you see their kind of their faces and their little snouts uh, <laughs> you kind of want to hug them but you can't do it you'll end up with spikes all over your hand what else do hedgehogs add to a garden well they'll eat snails which is is good because then your snails don't you know uh, eat your lettuces and things like that it's just kind of trying to trying to find that balance obviously the best way is just to let nature do its thing and not intervene but you know when if you if you're building a home you 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 have to you know you have to have that balance of let's say you need electricity so if you need electricity the best way of uh, providing electricity is is using solar power if, if if that's possible i mean this all grew if you'll excuse the pun from your first um tender age of 18 when you were tending to a, a loving tomato <laughs> is this is this story true uh, well i think that was when i was in bath actually <laughs> and uh, and i i you know, I really needed to, to find some way of being in contact with nature. So I, I created this little rooftop garden, uh, which was literally, I had to clamber through a window and I had a couple of pots where, where I was growing some tomatoes and carrots and things like that. And it's immensely satisfying. You bite into it and uh, you've actually been part of, of, of it, its, its process, its, its growth. And then you can kind of uh, reap those 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 rewards in a in a simple manner just by just eating the tomatoes. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, you have a veggie patch now, right, in your garden? Yes, I have quite a large veggie patch, and I have uh, wild chickens as well that kind of roam all over the garden. And it's so beautiful to see them just strolling around the garden. And they they each one of them has their character. So when I go for a walk, they'll all follow me because they think I. <laughs> I'm going to feed them, so. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, lastly, what, you know, what's the number one thing that you see in nature that you think perhaps has taught you some kind of lesson through the years? Well, what have you learned from, from nature and, and working so connected to the land? Patience, I think, is just, is just observing her, honouring her and, and, and just seeing the, the miracle that nature is its creation in all senses it's absolutely mind-boggling uh, and if you if you if you're able to to be present to stand still and just have a peek at uh, just a flower and, and, and look at it consciously it's an absolute miracle hmm. well, I look forward to hearing more about your work and also your zero carbon house that you have built on the island i think that's definitely the future um not just of the land but also the building work that that people do on ibiza and um, i'm very much looking forward to having that conversation later in the series thank you so much for bringing us here to puda's leo a pleasure thank you so we're welcoming to this very special episode of amala tierra here in ibiza the director of Local Futures, Helena Norberg-Hodge. And we're creating the special edition of the series for World Localization Day. Now, Helena lives in Australia and has come to visit us as she has some strong connections to the world of regeneration and agriculture and used to visit the island often many years ago. Helena, thank you so much for being here on this um, beautiful piece of land right near to the Camus Corona. I'm very happy to be here and thrilled that you're doing something for World Localization Day, which we launched three years ago and it's expanded across, yeah, literally across the whole world. So lovely that Ibiza is part of that. How does it feel to be back on the island? It feels really good because uh, since I was here about five years ago, I've been in touch with and in some cases helped to catalyze numerous initiatives to revitalize the land here with, with a central focus on food. But because our focus is on localized, diversified food systems, it's also part of rewilding. And so I'm seeing so many bits of land now that are thriving, even though they're using less water. And, you know, at the same time as they reduce input, they're increasing production and making the land flourish and I'm meeting quite a lot of people who are clearly inspired and happy from this. There is something fundamental in our DNA about being closer to the land and closer to the, the food that feeds us. And that's why this whole local food movement is also linked to a movement that heals people from depression, from all kinds of mental and social problems. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing that here in Ibiza. There's a big change just in the last five years. What kinds of conversations have you been having with people that are kind of, you know, tending to the land here on the island? Well, I've been talking to people like Rebecca Frain, who has bought a farm called Can Pep up in the north of the island. I've been to see the amazing uh, wildflower garden that's been planted that basically is just fantastically beautiful, diverse, productive, and that was only watered four times in the year because it was based on awareness of dry land farming or agriculture. So the plants themselves were adapted so that you plant them with very deep roots and very little above ground. Essentially plants that are, are used to hardship and very little water. And now it's just flourishing, blossoming and so abundant. I've, um, I'm in touch with Christian uh, Jochnik from Juntos and seeing what they're doing and how that has grown and flourished over the last five years. We're practically overlooking Christian's piece of land that is regenerating the almond blossom trees just uh, with biochar just on the road that I drove in on to meet you. Yes, actually, that's. I guess that's uh, not his land, but he's had the right there to plant almond trees and in a collaboration with the preservation, Ibiza Preservation Fund. And yes, wonderful to see hundreds of almond trees were planted there. Again, from last time I was here, those hundreds of trees are there. They weren't there last time. And we're on the land uh, of Uri Fruchtman, 
who's got a little farm here. And again, there's much more growing on the land, chickens that are thriving, honey bees. Yeah, it's it's both abundant and and again, what's very impressive is that it's based on a very careful use of resources. On such an abundant island that you've just described, I mean, why do you feel like we have this issue about, you know, the kind of lack of locally grown produce and this kind of localised source of, you know, seasonal island zero kilometre food that's available to kind of feed this massive influx of tourism that happens every summer? Well, this is really the big picture story that we should all be telling each other. I ended up looking at that big picture because I ended up in 1975 in this remote part of the world called Ladakh, which is which is West Tibet. And um, it's a, a sort of Shangri-La in that it's a high altitude desert surrounded by the high Himalayas. So it was an area that was snowed in for almost eight months of the year. And it's the westernmost part of Tibet that belonged politically to India. It had been sealed off for political reasons because all the borders were under dispute. And then it was thrown open in the mid-70s. And I came out as part of a film team. And as one of the first outsiders, I learned to speak the local language fluently. Originally, I had come to just be there for six weeks to help make the film. But I fell in love completely with these remarkable people who were so chilled out and just sort of radiating this peace of mind and joy and humor. And I was fascinated by that and stayed when the film was finished, learned to speak the language fluently. And I got to see what life can be like when when the local knowledge of people who live in a particular climate and particular soils and with water sources in particular places, how when they're in charge of feeding themselves, providing housing, uh, clothing, all their basic needs from their own land, how differently things look. And above all, what happens then is that they are adapted to these different circumstances. And up there on the Tibetan Plateau, they were living in one of the most difficult environments in the world, very dry uh, and you know almost no rain. So the way they had survived was by irrigating the desert with glacial meltwater. And through this very careful, intimate adaptation, were actually quite wealthy. So there was none of the poverty that I saw in the rest of India, none even of the poverty I had seen in America or even in my native country of Sweden. There was no unemployment and and as it turned out there was no such thing as depression. Suicide was basically unheard of. And then I got to witness how the global economic system actually for hundreds of years has actually destroyed local self-reliance and ended up imposing a monoculture, top-down monoculture, where there's been pressure to grow the same species of seeds, use the same animals, use the same cement, the same chemical fertilizers, and destroy the diversity, the self-reliance, and the wealth, and destroy meaningful, ongoing, sustainable livelihoods. Maybe most importantly, what I saw was that this top-down system, often coming to us through our government and through the businesses we might see in Ibiza or in Tibet or in Sweden, but actually emanating from this global system, that that destroyed our connection to one another. It broke down the relationships between grandparents and grandchildren, between more extended community fabrics, where every mother had 10 caretakers for every child, where there was this social interdependence that made everything so much easier, so much more enjoyable. And you weren't afraid to grow old because you had a meaningful and connected function till the day you died. And for children to be surrounded by people of all ages 
who saw them, who heard them, who carried them when they needed to be carried, it created a completely different sense of identity, a, a secure, unthreatened identity. Do you feel like that's what's kind of happened in Ibiza in some ways? Because obviously, you know, what happened and what you witnessed and you were describing in Ladakh is almost, one, one might say, sort of similar to when tourism arrived in Ibiza and suddenly everybody left the farms, they left the land and they went in to work in, you know, taxis or hotels or restaurants and obviously farmed this ability to get money out of people coming here from abroad. But that only really started to happen. I mean, Ibiza was a very poor island. There was no money here. There was, you know, a very basic, as we've been hearing in the previous two interviews. And I feel like, you know, it's it's almost vaguely similar in principle. So I kind of wonder that, you know, you say about community being one of the major factors of all of this and the fact that we need to be connected. But what I see in the regenerative agriculture scene on Ibiza and also through your World Localization Days that you've been doing here for the last three years, you know, this very connected community on Ibiza that I think is actually rare. I don't know if it exists in Byron Bay, but, you know, what do you think is special perhaps about that scene that exists here? Well, I mean, first of all, I'd like to go back to what you said first, which is the parallel between what happened in Ladakh and what happened here in Ibiza. Absolutely, I would say step by step by step, there is a parallel. You could show very clearly how this belief that more and more tourists is in the interest of the local community, especially places like Ladakh and and Ibiza that are beautiful, that still have some of the traditional culture, have ended up growing their economy through tourism and all the evidence is there that the tourism doesn't actually increase wealth for local people it increases wealth for outside investors who invest in the hotels and in various aspects of this tourist economy and when the tourists come into whether it's to Ladakh or to Ibiza or parts of Italy, France, wherever, what you see is that very little money actually stays in the hands of local people. It's like whether it's the loo paper or the food or even the water, it's imported. So the money goes out virtually before it's come in and then some a few outside investors make lots of money. And that's the tragedy is that very often local community leaders, local government leaders believe that supporting tourism is their only way to grow the economy. And there hasn't been a discussion about how can we grow the economy in a way that doesn't drain and destroy the local water, the land, and the people. How can we actually paint a vision and, if you like, a new paradigm, a systemic paradigm? We can actually do this in a way that would benefit the land, benefit the local people. And that is really where the global to local comes in. And... And yes, now in Ibiza, luckily, some of the foreigners who've moved in here have actually come here because they valued Ibiza. They didn't come here as tourists who just wanted to get drunk and have a party and leave again. These are people who come, who have community values, ecological values, and they bought land and are starting to grow food. And, and uh, you know, the more enlightened of them are also connecting with local people and are really willing to commit to work together to revitalize the land here and to ensure that the water supply doesn't go just for the, you know, flush lavatories for tourists, but can actually be used to enrich the land and be used in a way that would be truly sustainable and ecological. And when you look at it, it is about local people involved in local knowledge, in collaborating both locally and globally to support a fundamentally different model. It's a model that will all around the world support the local ecosystems, the local communities that live there, the local jobs that are needed for people who live there. It's not based on this extractive economy, which parades in front of our eyes, you know, in form of billionaires who already have 100 billion, but are getting richer as the majority of people are getting poorer. So that, that's the image for the old narrative, the old story that makes very few people richer. The new story is one that simultaneously enriches the land 
and local people. That's what's so wonderful about it. And it's so important that we don't just talk green. We don't just talk about, hey, this is good for the land. Because around the world, including on Ibiza, the majority of people are actually getting poorer. It's harder to pay for the rent or buy a house. It's harder to put food on the table. You have to work longer hours. And we need to be showing that this localized economy can provide not just better jobs and better paid, but more meaningful jobs if we subscribe to the new paradigm of localization. I think that's very well put for sure and describes the scene on Ibiza, you know, absolutely 100%. I think there's a lot of people, as we saw during COVID times, really struggling without this kind of monoculture of tourism that's kind of shipped in and is kind of ruling the roost. And I think a lot of people, you know, really are working hard to to change that, including a lot of people that you just mentioned in the beginning, Rebecca and Christian and Yuri and many other people, Gabby, obviously from Ibiza Produce. And I think that's the beauty of this island. There are people coming together and really wanting to do some good work. And I think, you know, one of the ways to do that and that we're also going to do throughout the course of this podcast is as well as every month there's an episode, we're going to have a community event. So people actually get together and talk about the subjects that we've just been discussing on the podcast as a way of, you know, getting people out of the field or out of the house and, and meeting somewhere outside in nature to have these kinds of conversations and the first one this month of the month of June where we're launching the podcast is obviously World Localizations Day which is very serendipitous really that you just happen to be here on Ibiza for the month that we're launching in June so I'm very excited about that and I think it would be really great to hear obviously you know the fact that we're organizing something but what you know what's the premise behind this day for you? Well the premise behind it is that it's become absolutely vital that we do everything we can to get this different story, this different narrative out. Because unfortunately, in almost all of the mainstream media, mainstream academia, mainstream science, things are locked into a narrow, over-specialized perspective that doesn't put the bigger picture together. And so that means that the dominant stories are continuing to pull people into a a way of serving and supporting the conventional path of growth. And that conventional path of growth is measured by GDP. GDP literally increases with unemployment, with cancer. You know, if you and I get bad cancer, have to have chemo over several years, that makes the economy grow. If the water is so polluted, you have to buy imported bottled water, that's good because GDP simply measures commercial transactions. So GDP is a measure of commercialization, and commercialization grows with breakdown. When things function as they should in a healthy, natural way, you don't need all those commercial transactions for everything. And so we we urgently, urgently need to be telling stories of how when we start coming together in our local communities, in our local areas, and we look at what would progress look like here? What would real growth be like? We would be looking at the growth of all those vegetables and even having some animals, that beautiful algaroba tree, that beautiful lemon and apricot tree, the almonds, seeing them grow, and of course, at some point also dying, but always connected to a cycle where the death nurtures growth and life. That is the growth we want to support, and we want to see that link to how our children grow up, And the whole way we grow our children and how we grow our food needs to happen under this fundamentally different paradigm. When, you know, was the first moment you visited Ibiza back in the 60s, when was it that you felt such a special connection to the land for the first time? When did you decide to set out on this path? Well, when I, when I, that was very clearly when I set foot in Ladakh or Little Tibet, where this picture became so clear because, as I said, there was no poverty. There, you know, poverty as we knew it all around the world didn't exist. And of course, it wasn't a complete paradise because people worked harder, 
well, actually, no, it's not even true. They didn't work harder. They used their bodies more. And it took me years to realize that actually we have muscles in our arms and legs because we're meant to use them. And it took me probably several years before I realized that we who were condemned to sitting still at a desk or in front of a computer were actually suffering much greater hardship as we developed back trouble and got fat and unhealthy. And so anyway, it was this functioning, more localized system and the impact of this techno-economic global system that clearly distinguished between a way forward that was connected to the living natural world and our adaptation to it as opposed to being pulled by some ideas about progress and technology away from that. And that was crystallized for me in the 70s. And ever since that time, I've been trying to raise awareness. What would you like to see in Ibiza the next time you come back here? How do you think we could improve on the work that we're already doing here? I think Ibiza could be truly one of the leading global hotspots for the sort of big picture education we need. I think that if people who have a vision of working truly with nature, in nature, and in community, if they can come together and deliver enough of an essentially educational package that people can really experience the health and the joy that comes from working with and in nature and in community and harness the tourism that comes here to help build up funds that can support the ongoing uh, building that needs to happen. There is so much that needs to happen to do with changing regulations to support genuine health, genuine ecological health. And it's going to require lots of people. That's one of the most important things that can happen. Helena Norberg-Hodge, thank you very much for agreeing to come on to the very first episode of Amala Tierra. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us and to finally meet you face to face. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to meet you and hope we can keep collaborating. <laughs> <laughs>